Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Blood flow restriction is essentially placing a cuff or a wrap. Um, so kind of a, a modified blood pressure cuff uh, or even a blood pressure cuff at the top of the limb. So the arm or the leg. Um, and essentially you just inflate it to a pressure that partially restricts blood flow. So blood flow is always going into the limb during exercise. Um, but when that's done and it's combined with low load exercise, so 20 or 30% of your max, um, the observations that we typically see are changes in muscle size and strength. So it's just uh, exercising with partial blood flow restriction for short periods of time, right? We're not applying blood flow restriction for hours, it's for minutes. Um, so it's very acute uh, application. Hi, I'm Pete McCall. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. That voice you just heard is a guest for this episode, Dr. Jeremy Lenicky. Before I go into the full introduction for Dr. Lenicky, a little warning. This episode, we're going to be talking about muscle growth, specifically the science of blood flow restriction and how blood flow restriction can initiate muscle growth. I wanted to take a deep dive into the topic so I pitched an article on blood flow restriction to the American Council on Exercise. I write for their online magazine, Certified. And when I was doing the research, when I was reviewing the research to write the article, one name kept popping up over and over again, and that was Dr. Lenicky's. I reached out to Dr. Lenicky to ask if he could do an interview about blood flow restriction, and he was very gracious with his time. And to give you a little bit of a background, Dr. Lenicky has his PhD from the University of Oklahoma. He has a master's degree in exercise physiology. This is somebody who conducts research. He's also a teaching professor at Ole Miss at the University of Mississippi. But he was one of the leading authors. I can't tell you how many different studies I saw his name on, whether he was a contributing author or a leading author, but he has been contributing to the field of research on blood flow restriction training. One of my goals with All About Fitness is to bring you the top researchers or bring you the researchers who are doing the work to help us understand how the body responds to exercise. And that's what we talk about today. Dr. Lenicky gives me some insights about what he's been studying, why he got interested in it, and what he's learned about how blood flow restriction can promote muscle growth. Before we start the interview, just a little reminder, my two books, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple, and Ageless Intensity, High Intensity Workouts to Slow the Aging Process. Both books are available now. There are links down below in the show notes. You can pick them up. But Smarter Workouts will teach you how to design workout programs on your own. Ageless Intensity will teach you the science of how exercise can slow down the aging process. They're there for your resource. If you want more information, you can go to my website, PeteMcCallFitness.com. If you sign up for my email list, I'll send you one or two high-quality emails a month that will help you learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. And that's exactly why I had this conversation with Dr. Lenicky. He's been conducting the research to understand how blood flow restriction results in muscle growth. So here we are with a detailed discussion about the science of blood flow restriction and what that means for our muscles with Dr. Jeremy Lenicky from the University of Mississippi. Today on the All About Fitness podcast, we are in for a special, and I mean this with the, the best love possible. We're in for a special geek session with Dr. Jeremy Lenicky. Jack, Dr. Lenicky, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. Thank you for having me on. 
No, certainly. Now, before we get into the conversation about about blood flow restriction, looking at your your background and, and your your experience, you grew up in Missouri, right? Yes. And where would you go? You went to undergrad in Missouri, but where'd you get your PhD? Uh, University of Oklahoma. Okay, so you grew up in Missouri, you went to University of Oklahoma, and now you work at, at Ole Miss. So it's, it's Saturday on a it's Saturday on college football season. Who do you root for? That's a very easy one. University of Oklahoma. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's why we had to do it this morning because, you know, we're playing Nebraska um, at 11 a.m. Okay. Oh, interesting. And now I, I, my family are Cornhuskers going back to, to my grandparents grew up in Nebraska. No, we're not gonna we're not gonna break down. We're not, you're not here to break college football is a whole different uh, podcast. And then what's your, what's that picture of your left shoulder? Because I love that. I love the fact that that you you you're a professor of exercise physiology and you have uh, that guy in your office. I mean, that's one of the greatest bodybuilders of all time. You know, you know Arnold it goes back to pumping iron days. Um, I think it's somebody. <laughs> you know, we I have the encyclopedia uh, of Arnold over there as well. So yeah, I think. You know, anybody who's interested in lifting weights has, has followed Arnold's advice at some point. You may not follow it anymore, but at some point, you certainly did. Well, what's, and what's interesting to me is when, whenever I read stuff, and, and like I let a lot, read a lot of your research, which is why I reached out to you, whenever I read stuff, read stuff, read stuff, um, and you look at what the science says, the science pretty much validates what the bodybuilders do already. So, so the question, one of the questions I ask researchers like yourself is, which comes first? Which is that chicken and which is that egg? Is it the research that kind of leads what happens in the industry and what people do? Or is it what people are doing in the gym? And you guys go, huh, I wonder why that's working. Let's study it. Which, is, which do you think is the driver? Yeah, I think it depends on typically what science uh, that, you're, that you're in. Um, I think in exercise science, it's probably typically observing what people are doing and saying, I wonder if there's actually something to that. Um, and then studying that in more controlled environments and going, uh, there's nothing to that, but there does seem to be something to this. Um, so, yeah, I often think that um, we follow what they do and then we try and decide whether or not it actually does what they say it does. Yeah, I mean, that's where you get, because yeah, you're right, when you talk about experiments, you want to have things controlled, but when you look at what bodybuilders do in the gym, I mean, that's like constant experiment. If you look at it, they're the original biohackers, but what, what, are, what is your area of specialty? How would you define your area of specialty? Uh, skeletal muscle physiology, so um, mostly focusing on exercise, usually alternatives to, you know, traditional high load exercise, so a large focus of what we've done here at Ole Miss and then Oklahoma was is blood flow restriction. All right, and how do you describe? And that's how I found out about you. And and I did do an interview a couple months ago with Dr. Jim Stray Gunderson, who who uses blood flow restriction. Have you done any work with him? Have you communicated with him at all? Um, maybe some time ago, but I've never worked with him directly now. Okay, yeah, no, he seems to be more of a practicing exercise physiologist. He's not a researcher, uh, but he's more of a practitioner, and he applies it. Well, what got you interested in, in blood flow restriction? And if you could, describe what blood flow restriction is, and then how would you kind of go down that rabbit hole? Yeah, so blood flow restriction is essentially placing a cuff or a wrap, um, so kind of a, a modified blood pressure cuff uh, or even a blood pressure cuff at the top of the limb, so the arm or the leg. Um, and essentially, you just inflate it to a pressure that partially restricts blood flow. So blood flow is always going into the limb during exercise. Um, but when that's done and it's combined with low load exercise, so 20 or 30 percent of your max, um, the observations that we typically see are changes in muscle size and strength. So it's just uh, exercising with partial blood flow restriction for short periods of time. Right? We're not applying blood flow restriction for hours it's for minutes um, so it's very acute uh, application um, I got into blood flow restriction uh, when I was I did an internship at the University of Illinois uh, towards the end of my undergraduate so at that time I was starting to get more and more interested in actually doing research um, and as an undergraduate when you're reading research papers there's a lot of times where you you, you just don't know what's going on because there's just things that are more advanced than 
what you're capable of understanding at that time. So I, I read a paper on blood flow restriction, um, and I just remember being that that doesn't make any sense. I, I must just not understand what I'm reading because it doesn't make any sense that you would restrict blood flow and good things would happen. So I was like, I, I just must not be understanding. So I went to Illinois um, and I was interning in a lab up there doing some animal work, muscle physiology work up there. And some of the guys in the gym that I was training at, who I had known from the bodybuilding.com message board. So it's kind of a community back in the day. Um, they were kind of messing around with this idea of blood flow restriction, uh, just using some different uh, uh, knee wraps and things like that. Um, and I, I was talking to them and I remember thinking, well, maybe I, maybe I was reading that correctly. So then I just started reading about it every day. Um, and I, I came back to Southeast Missouri State for my master's. Um, and I wrote a, a review paper with uh, my mentor there, Dr. Fugel, um, just about how we might be able to use kind of elastic knee wraps to, to induce this thing. It was just an idea. Um, and that's basically what I've been doing mostly ever since. And that's interesting. The first time I'd heard about it was maybe mid 2000s. So probably about the same time. Yeah. Um, somebody I knew in the, in the educator in the education side of things, um, was, was telling me about using blood pressure cuffs to, to, to help help uh, with hypertrophy. And like you, it like, was like, huh? What, you know, you're kind of like, you hear that and it seems so counterintuitive. And then when you start talking about occluding blood flow or stopping blood flow and exercise, I'm like, that seems way over the, the, the scope of what personal trainers, what a normal personal trainer would do. And that's why I've spent the last number of years is in educating personal trainers. So it was one of those things where I heard about, I kind of filed it away as at some point I'll kind of dig at that a little bit more, but it seems to be coming back into trend. I mean, you've published a number, a bunch of research over the last number of years. What's been your most interesting finding? What's the thing that's really caused you to go, wow, I didn't realize that this would happen. Um, several things I would say, I think when I went into it, um, there was a, there, there's a, there's several different ways to restrict blood flow. Um, and there was one way that was the, the more popular way, uh, more traditional view. And I, I, I went into it thinking that that was probably the end all be all, the only way that it should be done. Um, and, you know, some of our early work pretty quickly suggested that probably wasn't the case. Um, that, you know, assuming that you're applying appropriate stimulus, it really probably matters less about what particular cup that you're using. Um, it's more about the technique itself. It's not saying that different ones don't have, you know, good features or anything like that. But, you know, it. I, I just went into it thinking that the only way you can do it is if you use this. And I, I, I don't think that's the case. Um, I think another one is we started getting into this idea of saying, you know, we need to be applying the pressure relative because the, the old studies, they applied the same pressure to everyone. Mm. So... Um, we did a lot of work on that. And, you know, my original thought was, you know, that that would really dictate um, a lot of the muscle adaptation. If, if you apply the wrong pressure, maybe you wouldn't get the same stimulus. Um, and there's been some caveats added to that idea now because we've done enough work where it suggests that um, the, the pressure applied, the relative pressure. So if I apply um, 90% of the pressure it takes to completely cut off your blood flow versus 40%, the muscle adaptations, in other words, muscle size, muscle strength changes, those are probably going to be pretty similar, no matter the pressure. Uh, but the vascular adaptations, so changes in resting blood flow, some of these indirect markers of capillarity, they may actually require a higher pressure. So um, there's also some safety uh, considerations that you have to think about with the pressure applied. Um, but I think those are, are some of the bigger ones. And I think more recently, and this is, I'll, I'll just be up front and say quite controversial because it's not, it's not specific to blood flow restriction. It's, it's resistance training in general. Um, a lot of our work on blood flow restriction and a lot of our work on low loads has started to make us wonder whether or not that change in muscle size that we see with exercise is actually contributing to changes in strength or there may be two different things when we're increasing. So that last one is specific to all exercise, not just blood flow restriction, but it's certainly a, a controversial take, I would say. 
Well, and I want to stay on this for a second before I, I got I want to ask a question about that, about size versus strength. But looking at this from a safety standpoint, I think the one thing I read in, in two or three papers was as long as you have a pulse, a distal, further away from the occlusion point from where the band is applied, as long as you have a pulse distal to that, then you know you have, you have arterial blood flow. Is that is that correct? Is that one way to kind of measure yeah. the gauge of mm-hmm. using this? Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's how we, <clears throat> so um, that's how we set the pressure because there's two important kind of two big factors that determine um, how, how high the pressure should be. It's really dictated by how wide is the cup that you're using and then how big is the limb. Now, you can account for both of those if you take one single measurement where you do, you basically take whatever cup you're going to use, put it on whatever limb you're looking to exercise, and like you said, take the pulse distal to the cup. So like in our lab, we put the cuff at the top of the arm. We're, we're placing a Doppler probe at the wrist or the ankle. And we slowly inflate the cup until we get to the lowest pressure of which there is no flow. And then we take a percentage of that. And that's how we ensure that there's always blood flow going into the limb. Okay. And that's and then when you said low volume, so if I say if I include my upper arms and I'm going to do an upper body day, I should only do like one or two exercises, right? Like maybe a shoulder press or maybe some type of um, lateral raises and not really do a full workout wearing the, wearing the bands, correct? Or wearing the occlusion. Right. Uh, yeah. And if you haven't done it at all, I would probably start with one exercise. Um, we, we've certainly done it where we've had people a long time ago, we went through total workouts with blood flow, under blood flow restriction, but I wouldn't recommend that if you have never done this before. I would do one exercise, and then if you can work up to it, maybe two exercises. But beyond that, I mean, that that muscle group is mostly going to be pretty much uh, maxed out for the day. Yeah, and, and the rep range that I've seen, and again, this is just from reading. I, I have a weird, funky visual memory, doctor. So when I read when I, when I read research, I take a lot of notes, and I'll remember what I write and, and, and all that. But I remember seeing, too, that you have the width of the band that matches with pressure. You have um, the, the tourniquet applied. Oh, and the rep range. So the rep range that I saw in, in one or two studies was 30, 15, 15, 15. So one set of 30 and three sets of 15. So that's a relatively high volume. Is that is that pretty consistent with what your your findings have shown? Yeah, I think that's a, a pretty good one to use in, in actual practice. Um, in research, we started with that and used that for a long time, but we just transitioned to just saying, do as many repetitions as you can uh, for each set. So another way you can do it is just to go to uh, failure. Um, but I, I think when you're training people in real life, it, it, it probably it probably benefits to have some sort of goals goal repetitions so they know kind of what to shoot for. So I think both strategies are fine, or, or even doing both, I think is useful. It's relatively safe, right? I mean, again, the the perception when you start hearing blood flow occlusion, I know that's like that. Like I said originally, when I heard it, I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. And then you kind of have the same thing. But the research that I read. There were one or two. There were only like the the, the the number of incidents was very very low, considering the high number of people that the different research reviews read. All the different people that experienced it. Has that been your experience as well? That's a relatively safe procedure when applied correctly. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know, like we said a little bit earlier, there's you know you have to consider the two points. One, uh, it's only partial restriction, and two, it's very acute, so it's applied for only minutes, not for a not for long periods of time. Um, but yeah, and I, I think the, the one thing we always have to keep in mind is, is that anytime we're exercising, there's always a risk uh, for lots of different things to happen. I, I think the important question, um, and I think it's what you're getting at, that when we exercise with blood flow restriction, are we increasing that risk? Um, and when we look at two of the things that people are most concerned about, which is uh, coagulation activity or blood clots, and muscle damage, neither one of those um, seems to be an increased risk when we do it with blood flow restriction compared to that of traditional exercise. So, yeah, I would say that, uh, relatively speaking, it, it's pretty safe compared to normal exercise. No, and, and I appreciate you saying that, doctor, because a lot of people forget that, that, and I remind people constantly on this podcast, exercise is physical stress imposed upon the body. And you're absolutely right. Anytime you start 
messing with homeostasis, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. I mean, and that's and that's the other thing. I love. I speak a lot of most of my guests are researchers like yourself. Not most, but a good majority of them. And I always point out that researchers don't know anything. That a good researcher, and I'm not saying that you don't know anything because obviously you do. But you, when you when you talk to somebody like yourself. You don't give definitive answers. You give answers based on your observation. And I say that because I will always warn listeners that the more definitive answer somebody in fitness gives you, the less they know. If, if I say do X, if I say do this and do this, you'll get this, like you see on social media, you probably don't want to listen to that person because they don't really know. Whereas somebody like yourself who studies this stuff, you're like, well, we think this is happening. So I say that. Why? What? What is? What is the prevailing hypothesis about how blood flow restriction causes muscle growth? Because again, we don't know for certain. But based on your observation, what do you? What do you think is is the mechanism of muscle growth when we start occluding, uh, especially the the inflow, the venous inflow? Yeah, um, good question. You know, some of the ideas that have been put forth um, is. And it's probably a combination of, of a number of different things, but one of them is a cell swelling idea. So when we apply the cuff, you know, we get some sort of muscle cell swelling. Um, and it's suggested um, that that could turn on some of these beneficial pathways. Um, another one that I think becomes more prominent when we talk about resistance exercise for blood flow restriction is this metabolic accumulation. Um, and I think one of the original ideas, and I think we put a lot of stock into this early on was that, you know, there, there could be something very unique about the pooling of metabolites in or around that muscle. So just in and of itself, that could be useful. So just the fact that we're bathing that muscle and these metabolites that, that are produced during exercise, that might be useful. Um, I, I, I've started to pull away from that idea uh, only because there's just not a lot of data that suggests that that in and of itself is driving it. Um, I do think that those pulling of metabolites, though, might help provide a reason for why we see such high levels of muscle activation. Um, and so I, I think the metabolite effect is probably indirect in the fact that it's helping to induce fatigue. So we recruit more and more and more and more fibers. Um, so and, and that's where I think it becomes interesting, because the question generally is, is that is there something unique about blood flow restriction? Is the mechanism different than that of traditional high load exercise? And I, I think at the fiber level, I don't think that's the case. I think once the fiber is activated and it's activated for a sufficient duration of time, similar to what we see with traditional exercise, when we look at the fiber, all of those mechanisms, at least from what I can tell, are the same things that you'd expect to see with high load exercise. So I, I think that the, the neural activation of how we recruit those fibers is, is quite a bit different when we're using a low load versus a high load. But once we activate the fiber itself, all those pathways, and from what I can tell, in my opinion, is very similar. Uh, but I, I think the initiators are cell swelling, perhaps, and then this metabolic accumulation, which induces fatigue. Well, and that's interesting because I'm thinking about, again, going back to the bodybuilding because the bodybuilding era, which which calls for a high volume, if you're if you're following a bodybuilding protocol, you're doing a single muscle group like say chest, and you're doing maybe four or five different exercises from push-ups to presses to flies, whatever, and you're probably doing somewhere three to five sets per per exercise. So what is that? Four times, let's say four, sixteen. So you're doing sixteen sets. Say you're doing twelve sets to fatigue. That's a pretty high volume which is going to create a lot of internal pressure. So I, I would imagine that you would get a cell swelling reaction from that, and you're going to be bathing the tissue of metabolites if you keep that pump up for about 45, 50 minutes. Whereas with blood flow, with BFR, it, it seems like you're just, because you're occluding blood flow, you're increasing the pressure automatically, and then that's what's kind of triggering that response. Is that is that a pretty... You're, you're just kind of What you're doing is instead of taking the country route, you're taking the city route, and it's more direct. It, it might there might be a little more stress on the tissue, but it's it's a little bit more direct. Is that is that kind of a way to describe it? I think so, and yeah, I think you're right. I think you're just making low load exercise more difficult. Um, so you're you're activating these fibers that aren't normally activated at that low load because it's much much more difficult because you've reduced arterial inflow and because you're uh, 
you know, trapped a lot of these metabolites in the limb. So yeah, I think so. And then how about the, because what the other thing that really kind of that startled me, and, and for listeners, I'm sorry to be getting a little bit in the weeds on this, but this is, you know, after reading your, your studies, it's, it's I'm kind of fanboying out here, to be 100% honest uh, about this. But one of the things that was interesting to me was you have the two type, you have two muscle fiber types, or two dominant fiber types, you have oct- you have the oxidative, the type one that's rely on oxygen, and then you have the top two, the type two, sorry, the type two, which can rely on anaerobic. So one of the other mechanisms that was interesting to me that is this one of the things where if you reduce blood flow, you're going to automatically kind of activate the type two fibers quicker than you would if you had normal blood flow. Because from my understanding of the fiber theory, fibers will work until fatigued and then the larger fibers, the type twos will be recruited to an activity. So again, does this seem like a way to shortcut, let's move the type ones to the side and be able to focus specifically on the type two activation? Yeah, I think that's generally an idea. Yeah, that um, you expedite fatigue to where you're recruiting those type two fibers a little bit quicker. Um, I think I think one of the original uh, or some of the original thoughts too is that you might bypass them completely and just go to type two, but I don't think that's the case um, because there's several studies that have looked at the fiber level, or at least a couple that come to mind that show growth in both type one and type two fibers, which would indicate that they were activated. So yeah, I would agree that um, it does seem like you're going to be recruiting those type two fibers much quicker than you would without that blood flow restriction, for sure. And is that, because I look at that, and that's to me is the most interesting thing, because when I talked to Dr. Jim about this, it was in the context of BFR and like older adults, that BFR can be an effective way to kind of kickstart or promote muscle growth in people over the age of 50. Would that be a way to do it? Because I think with some people of that age who don't have a history, people over the age of 50 who've been lifting weights, don't. that's not a concern for me. But over the age of 50 who don't have a history of years of strength training, would BFR be a, a, consider, a consideration if they're looking to gain muscle mass? I, I think so. Uh, it's not to say that they couldn't get the same or similar things from just doing normal exercise, um, but it is an option. Uh, to, to use because, um, you know, we, we've done studies in older men and older women and, and compared traditional exercise to blood flow restriction. Um, and I, I think the, the usefulness is, is that it, it's a, just another option because some people, uh, especially older adults, they may be unable to lift, you know, those higher loads uh, for whatever reason. Maybe they physically can't or they're, they have some sort of uh, fear of lifting very heavy weights. But the other component of that is they just may not want to. Uh, they may not want, they may be unwilling to lift at those higher loads and maybe they feel better lifting at lower loads. So um, it's certainly an option and it, it, it certainly has been shown to be beneficial in older adults for sure. Yeah, that to me, that's what the most interesting thing is. And and the way I see, I haven't started playing in with it yet. I kind of wanted to kind of go through the research and, and make sure I understood it. But the way I see using it is, is like anything else, doctor, and I want to make this clear for listeners because I think sometimes in fitness when a new technique or something comes out, like, for example, when kettlebell training was kind of reintroduced 15 years ago, all of a sudden everything else sucked and the only thing you ever should be doing is swinging a kettlebell. When the TRX came out, and I love the TRX, all of a sudden forget the barbells, forget all the external, you know, the, the um, external weight. Use only your body weight with TRX. So I think sometimes in fitness we do too good of a job talking about the benefits of a particular technique or a particular strategy. So the way I see BFR working is, and, and, and I'd be interested in your feedback on this, is like anything else, is do it for like maybe a six to 10 week period in part of the year if you want to work on muscle pumps. Say you do it between mid-April and Memorial Day to get ready for the beach and then you would maybe maintain during the summer and then maybe do it again at another point in the year to kind of kickstart the muscle growth process. Would that be one way to apply it? And certainly there's no right way. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, I, I think you could do that. You could do um, use it just as a tool for whenever you feel a little bit tired or you're psychologically, I, I cannot lift heavy weights safely today. Maybe you do that instead. Maybe you... Um, do it when you're a little banged up to help you recover a little bit, or, you know, you, you, you could also not use it. Um, that's also fine. Yeah. But I, I, I agree with you. I, I think it, there's a lot of different ways you can work it in. And if you're someone who's training and you're interested in training for long periods of time, let's say, 
you know, you're 40 years old, you're, you're going to be training for the next 30 years. It's probably useful to, to switch things up every once in a while, just from a psychological perspective, keep things fresh, keep you motivated. So this would be, a, I think, a, a useful tool for that as well. Well, and just, just uh, out of sheer um, self-promotion here, that's exactly what I write about in, in, in my two in uh, ages intensity is and that's um, but but what I talk about in that because what I realize I'm 49 years old and I realize I try I do a lot of travel on behalf of a couple companies like Nautilus and Stairmaster and I, I go both around the U.S. And, and around the world to teach workshops for them and what I've seen is that there's a huge population out there of people between about 45 and 65 who grew up in the 80s. That guy, that Arnold picture over your over your shoulder, was part of the, their their motivation. But there's this huge population out there, people between like 45 and maybe even 70, who've been exercising their whole lives. And and to be honest, we don't have a lot of data on how exercise affects them long term. Has that been something in your lab that you've thought about looking at at your lab at like looking at people in their 50s and 60s who've been exercising for 30 or 40 years? And kind of seeing what, how their muscle biopsies are different than other people who maybe haven't been exercising. Um, it's not of of interest right now. Okay. Um, and we've never. I mean, we don't do biopsies in our lab. We uh, we do whole muscle estimates. Um, when I first got there, uh, me and Dr. Abe, um, Dr. Abe had some interest in looking at kind of master level cyclists. Um, and we did compare or uh, look at their muscle mass and strength relative to college people. Um, and it was pretty similar, to be honest. And, and their strength was, was pretty high. Um, now, that's a, a select group of master level cyclists. I don't remember a whole lot of, uh, of information on that. But I, I, I do, I, I am interested, you know, even if I'm not interested in studying it, particularly in my lab, I'm interested in the idea, um, mostly because I'm curious if, if you have someone like yourself or, or, or people who are, um, have been training their whole life. Is there something different about those people than people who just for whatever reason cannot maintain exercise? That's a, that's a, maybe it's an academic question, but it's a question that I'm interested in that there's something just different about those people. Um, so, but I'm not interested in studying that particularly. No, and that's, but the thing is like, and I talk about this, I started playing uh, club rugby, men's club rugby, when I right out of college. So I was 21, 22 years old, very, very full of myself, very arrogant. And I literally got run, run into the ground, doctor, by these guys almost twice my age in their late 30s and early 40s. And at my mind, at 22, looking up from the ground with like cleat marks on my back, I realized I want to grow up and be like those. I mean, that was what kind of that's what originally did it. Was like when I get to 40, I want to be in the same fitness that these guys are now. It was kind of that like. It, for whatever reason, it, it flipped a switch. It was kind of like that monkey see, monkey do. But yeah, I, I just bring that up because I find it we're in an interesting, and, and I talk about this because we have the population of fittest older adults that we've ever had, but we really just don't know what that means. Like, we, there's a lot that we don't know about exercise and the aging process because a number of the studies I've read over the years focus specifically on when they looked at an intervention, they focused on like a deconditioned or relatively sedentary population to do that intervention with. So I just think it's an, it's an interesting area that maybe, maybe I think I'm getting the sense I got to go do a PhD so I can start studying it. There, there is interesting data in older adults that where they initiate uh, a training program. So it's not like these lifelong individuals, but I think you might be able to extrapolate um, to them in, in the sense that you're probably going to lose some muscle mass and function with you at, with age. Yeah. But if, if you are able to exercise consistently, you might be able to slow down, slow down that loss. And I, I think most of that slow down of loss comes because you might get hurt less. So you might, you might be able to stay active for, for longer periods of time because there's interesting data in athletes that suggest that when they resistance train, they have a lower risk of injury. It's the same kind of thing that you see in older adults. They have a lower risk of injury. So I just wonder if there's not something to that because there's a lot of suggestion that people do okay. They have a, it's not like this sharp decline with age. It's, 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 it's very slight, but what happens when they get hurt, they become inactive and they lose a lot really quickly and they recover some of it, but not all of it, especially as you get older. So if you can prevent how many times you have those drops because you get hurt less, 
then that's something that I'm interested in as well, just from a thought perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it. maybe and now now I'm sitting there spinning the wheels going, maybe it is something to study and it might be following up with you. Now I want to come back to something you talked about earlier about hypertrophy and like muscle growth. Because this has been, it's been going back and forth, and and I've always been of the belief that you can have large muscles like sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, which for listeners is more fluid in the sarcoplasm of the muscle cells, versus myofibular hypertrophy, which is theoretically the individual fibers becoming denser. Are those really a thing, or is that just something that kind of pops up from time to time in certain literature? Is there really a difference between you know, the sarcoplasmic, what you referred to earlier, cell swelling, and the density of fibers. Yeah, the, the cell swelling, that's a very acute response. You get a, a swelling effect and it goes down. Um, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is an idea that's been, I think, reintroduced as of late. I am not, I am not convinced that that's really that big of a thing. I, I think it's... Um, I haven't seen any evidence that, that really points to that. Uh, I'm open to it, but I haven't seen anything that, that really suggests that there's a lot of strong evidence to indicate that that occurs. It would seem like they probably occur together to some extent. Um, I mean, you're, you're, it's obviously going to increase if the overall fiber is increasing. But, yeah, I, I think a lot of that comes from this, this idea that when you do lower loads or when you're a bodybuilder, you tend to be – relatively speaking, weaker than someone uh, who's training heavier. So they come up, they try to come up with some explanation for that. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and that might be, and, and to be fair, that that might explain it. Um, I don't think it does, but I, I don't think it's, there's reason to pull it completely off the table. Yeah, no, okay. I, I just, but I, and you're right, <clears throat> because you do have that, uh, that argument about guys who train for size, guys, but people who train for size, versus people who might train for strength and explosion. So is it possible, or how is it possible, that a muscle can become strong and capable of generating a lot of force, but not necessarily become large, what we would consider a large muscle? Yeah, and that's something we've been interested in for the past five years or so. And, and we've tried to address this through um, different experimental designs to try and manipulate how much muscle growth different groups have to see if that can impact how much strength they gain so you know I'll, I'll just start off early on uh, you know if you look at any book any kind of exercise physiology textbook the the story that they always tell is when individuals get stronger that's initially due to neural adaptations followed by larger contributions from muscle hypertrophy so that's something that i worked under for a long time i assumed anytime there was muscle growth it must be contributing to strength now, one of the things that really started to make me question that was, you know, when we, when we compare blood flow restriction to high load exercise, the growth is almost always the same. Strength is increases, but not even close to the same extent as, as high load exercise. And a lot of that can be dictated by how many times they're doing the strength test, et cetera. So that, that started to get us thinking that I wonder if, if muscle growth is actually contributing to strength, because I made a lot of excuses for it for a lot of times, but at some point it's hard to look at your students in the, in the face when they go, I'm a little confused on how this might be driving this um, because these things don't line up. So, you know, I had to go back and I started to think, I'm like, why do we think this in the first place? So you go back and look at this, the literature and it, it becomes pretty clear that there's no experimental evidence that suggests that a change in size contributes to strength. So we started designing experiments to try and manipulate growth to see if that had an impact, and we could find no impact at all. So in other words, if, the, if a group increased muscle size a little bit more, they didn't see greater strength. So um, there's also studies that show changes in size, but no changes in strength. And again, this is it's important to, to point out that we're talking about the change in response to exercise. There's no question that people who are bigger tend to be stronger than people who are smaller at baseline. That's observed in people who are untrained and people who are trained. But the question is, when that person lifts weights and they get stronger, why is that? So, you know, like I said early on, there's a lot of people who, who have criticized our, our studies uh, because they're not perfect, of course. 
um, and they've they've criticized kind of our thinking behind that, and that's and that's fine. Um, but I think most of them would agree that there is no experimental evidence. There's a lot of potential reasons to believe that it might, but to me, that's never been good enough for any other topic. So why is it good enough for this? Um, but yeah, you know, you know, we're doing several more studies to look at this, but it's an interesting topic for sure. Well, no, because I like that topic of the fact that you, and, and I try, I've told people for years, and this is my understanding of it. My, you know, I don't go in a lab. I just read what you guys produce in the labs, and I try to extrapolate that and apply it to what we do in the gyms and then educate personal trainers on that. And I've been operating under this belief for, for years. And again, it's, it's, my, it's my assumption based on what I've read that if I want to work on strength, I want to work somewhere between like four and eight repetitions, not necessarily to fatigue, but that last repetition should be really, really hard. And that by doing that, I'm working more on the neural activation and, and, and activating more motor units. And motor units activate the type 2 fibers. And I'm really looking at force production as opposed to volume. And so I've been looking at for years, Doc, is like three or four sets of five to eight reps of the compound lifts going heavy. And that's one of the things I recommend in my books is, is if you want to get strong, here's how you become strong. Not necessarily big, but I've always looked at kind of separating the two. Is that, is that, I mean, I want to, and maybe it's a little bit personal, but that's been, I've, I've been using that because that's been my interpretation of the research is like, hey, don't worry about necessarily training for size, but why don't you train for strength in an over, because strength can enhance quality of life. Yeah. And, and I think, I think most people would agree because if you look at the recommendations, there's two different sets, right? There's, there's recommendations for if you want to get stronger, there's recommendations for hypertrophy. So I think, and, and to be clear, you know, when people, and I agree, most people think that muscle growth is contributing. And the reason why they think that is because in their mind, and I, I think it's logical to connect that to go, well, if you're increasing muscle size and muscle size is the contractile apparatus, so it, would, it, would, it, would, it wouldn't be that much of a leap to say that must be contributing to strength. So I'm on board. I follow the logic. I think my only concern is, is that there's just no evidence that a change contributes to that. So that's, and that, and that's okay. But in my mind, I kind of fall in line with your thinking where I think we can learn from like looking at how we program to get those things. So if we know that strength is very specific, meaning that if we want to get strong, we need to train heavier, then why don't we start looking for mechanisms that might be able to explain that specificity component? Because changes in growth certainly cannot explain the specificity component. So what might? And maybe there's changes, as you said, in the neural drive. Maybe there's changes at the muscle fiber uh, that occur independent of changes in muscle size. I have no clue. you know. But I do think it would be useful to say um, or to investigate mechanisms that could explain one thing that everybody agrees on that specificity is king when it comes to string change well no i, I like that because i'm sitting here thinking as you're saying that and, and i'm hearing you because i think a lot of people make the mistake doctor of when they go to the gym they're always training for size they're always training for definition and it's kind of what you said have triggered something to me but you can't always be training for the same thing you need to go through. I mean, that's where we get the concept of periodization, right? It is based on based on your observations, and we'll wrap it up here soon. But based on your observations about how often should we be making? Well, should we number one? Should we be making the switches from like free weights to machines to barbells, dumbbells? Should we be using different equipment on a regular basis? If we're just if the goal is just being strong and fit, I'm not training for a stage. I'm not training for a com- competitive season. I just want to be strong and fit. Should we be looking to change our, our kind of training stimulus up? And about how often? Like how, how frequently should we change it? Yeah, to be honest, I, I don't think there's any need to, to change anything. I, th- I, I see no reason why you would need to other than the psychological component. That's the one thing that I think that would make me say you need to have some sort of manipulation um, just so you can maintain you know, some motivation in the gym for long periods of time. Because there are some people, I have met some people who can literally do the same thing for years and, and, and make some level of progress. 
Um, I I can do that with the deadlift, but most other things I need some sort of a, a, a little bit of just change. Otherwise, I'm getting just bored with exercise. So I think it really just comes down to the person. I, I think that, um, as you said, if you're not trained for powerlifting, so, I mean, if you are a powerlifter, then you need to be spending time doing bench, squat, and deadlift. But if you're not, then what I would say, just as somebody who's trying to encourage people to do exercise, do what you enjoy. Um, and if, if you start to tire of that, then make some slight alterations and then try to get better in that and then try to get better in that. I, I don't have any hard, uh, you know, uh, recommendation on that other than do what you enjoy um, and try to keep progressing it. Uh, but um, that's just my, my, my generic response, I suppose. <laughs> no, but, the, but again, that, that, what I like about hearing that is it, it just kind of validates the fact that there is no real specific one way to do things, right? That there, the, I, I would say that with the argument that I make is the only thing that we know for sure is that a lack of exercise, meaning not exercising, can take years off your life. Right. I mean, we've kind of seen that, that, that if you don't exercise on a regular basis, you could be short in your lifespan. But when it comes to exercise, as long as you're not hurting yourself, you find what you enjoy and double down on that. So so what are your favorite type of workouts? So somebody who studies muscle fiber physiology and does this research, do you get bored of it sometimes? You go, oh, God, I've been doing this all day. The last thing I want to do is go to the gym or like what type of stuff do you do for your own workouts? If I'm being honest, yes. Uh, I, I do um, because I, I'm just like every other person uh, or, or most other people who are, you know, who you work all day and you're exhausted and it's like, gosh, <laughs> do I really need to go to the gym? But I, 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 I always feel better when I do. Um, to be honest, my, the thing that I enjoy more than anything is just the deadlift. So I, I do other general workouts as well, but my main thing that I care about and that excites me is I just try to go in and deadlift as much as I can on a weekly basis. Um, so um, usually that's, you know, twice a week. Recently it's been one time per week. I just go up and work up to a heavy single and that's it. Uh, well, I, I follow it with a, a normal workout, but uh, that's my, the thing that excites me is just trying to deadlift um, as much as possible. Outside of that, I try and stay just physically active, try to get, you know, 10, 15,000 steps just a day, um, just normal activity, because I think that that's, you know, has a lot of important aspects as well. Um, but yeah, the deadlift for me is king. I love hearing that because I think for far too many guys, we think the bench press is king. And uh, just, just to let listeners know, I, I do a bench press recovery group. I used to be addicted to the bench press, but after my shoulders got jacked up playing rugby, it hurts the bench. Uh, I can't put heavy loads on the bar anymore. So Monday, evening, Monday evenings, we have a 12-step program where we go through the stages of missing, uh, missing, the, bench, <laughs> missing the bench press. But, but what is it about the deadlift? That I'll wrap up with, with this. is kind of like, well, two questions. Number one, what is it about the deadlift that makes it such an effective exercise and then I, I guess I didn't ask you this to begin with. Well, I'll, I want to hear your reaction to, to what, what makes a deadlift such an effective exercise. I, I think the, the, the main thing is, is that it feels good when I do it. I, I, when I squat, I don't feel good when I do it. The deadlift is just something that I enjoy. But I, I do think that there is some functional aspect to just being able to, because it, it even though it, I mean, it very much feels like a total body movement. Um, and it just feels good to be able to pick something up that's off the ground and pick it up into the air. And it's one of the lifts where it's impossible to really fool yourself. Hmm. So you can do a bench press and convince yourself that you can bench press 315, even though you're not really bench pressing 315. You can squat and convince yourself that you're squatting 500, even though you're only going down partially. <laughs> and, yeah. and because to be fair, it's sometimes it's difficult to know. Even if you're getting if you're getting close, you're not getting close. But so both of those, you can really convince yourself a lot of things. There's no one who can deadlift this much off the ground and convince themselves that they lifted the weight. Right? You either lifted the weight or you didn't lift the weight. And everyone can tell. So that's another thing that I like about the deadlift. Uh, what's been your heaviest lift? Uh it's, 6.15, Whoa. but I, I, I kind of stumbled at the top, so I, I don't count that, but 6.10 for sure. 
Well, that's uh, that's okay. That's the wow. I haven't I haven't even gotten near that. I think four. I think four or five was my heaviest a number of years ago. But um, yeah, my my goal is to try to do around three hundred around my birthday. So that even when I, as I get older, I want to. I, I got to figure. I got to adjust that as I get into my fifties. My forties is right to do to deadlift three hundred around three hundred around my birthday. Um, just as as kind of like to make sure I'm maintaining strength. And then final question. I mean, I kind of should have started with this rather than the football question. Is what got you started interested in in studying exercise in the first place? I see that picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger over your shoulder, which you were referencing. But what was it that said, okay, I want to I want to go in the lab. I want to become a professor of exercise phys and and really understand what's happening with the body what, what, what kind of got was that driver yeah so um i wrestled most of my life so um it started when i was about five years old and i wrestled all the way through high school um one of the things that my coaches would always tell me is, is like you know you have great technique but you need to get a little bit stronger um and i would always they don't we create this joke where i'm like because i hated working out I like to wrestle, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to train. Um, I was like, Coach, I don't need to work out. I'm too strong. I don't. <laughs> uh, so they started nicknaming me Too Strong, even though that was I wasn't. <laughs> uh, but then towards the end of my high school uh, years, I guess going into my junior year, I think, or yeah, my junior year, I started the summer before that. I started working out with one of my friends who was into bodybuilding, just kind of interested in the topic. So. I was like, well, let me give this thing a try. So I started working out with them. Uh, we started reading the bodybuilding magazines. We'd go to the store and wouldn't, we wouldn't pay for them quite often, but you know, you'd read them in the store. Then yeah, yeah. Um, but we started kind of following the sport, kind of getting into it. And then I started kind of getting more and more and more muscle mass. So I just kind of got to where I really liked that. Um, so um, because of that, I was like, well, maybe I'll study exercise. I think that's, that's, I didn't even know that was a thing, but I want to learn more about how to do this. So that's what I did. I went to Southeast and did my undergrad. Um, and I thought I wanted to kind of work with athletes. Uh, that was kind of where, where I was, you know, like many young people, you can't tell me anything. <laughs> I, I knew what I wanted to do. And people, professors would say, you know, keep your options open. Maybe you should do all, consider a lot of things. And I'm like, these guys don't, they don't get me. Yeah, um, yeah. I know what I want to do. So I, I did a, uh, a practicum where I was shadowing um, somebody who turned out to be a really good friend, but he was working with athletes. And I was like, ah, this ain't what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, so then I, for my internship, I, I had started reading a lot of research um, in muscle physiology. So I went to Illinois um, and did some muscle work there. And that's where I kind of came across blood flow restriction and came back and started studying that. So uh, that's what led me to Oklahoma and then what ultimately brought me to Ole Miss. Okay, well, I mean, hey, as a wrestler, Oklahoma, well, being in Oklahoma must have been a special thing, too, if you have a wrestling background of where you're, you know, you're kind of like, yeah. well, I'm at Oklahoma. You, you might not be on the map, but you're at least, uh, at least you're there. No, that's yeah. interesting because what I found, Doc, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but when you have athletes, because I've seen this in my number of my friends over the years, sometimes the best athletes hate the weight room. They can yeah. they, they you they would drive them. I, I have a good buddy who he would play pickup bat. He'd play sevens rugby or touch rugby all day long for like five hours until he passed out. But try to get him in the weight room for a forty five minute workout, and it's like it's like telling him he has to remove a testicle. He doesn't want to do it. You know, I mean, it's it's interesting. Has that been your observation? And why do you think that is? I mean, why do you think athletes enjoy being out on the field? Because they're not trying to be the best at lifting weights. Yeah, That's really, what it comes down to uh, the old Kenny Powers quote. I'm not trying to be the best at exercise. <laughs> I, 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 that was one of the things that kind of turned me off, to be honest, because in my mind, I had built up this idea that, you know, training hard is, I mean, of course you've got to train hard. And, and they, when, when they're there, they do train hard, right? But they didn't have the same level of passion for lifting weights that I thought that you needed. Um, and that conflicted with my worldview a little bit because – I, in my mind, I'm like, these guys, they, they hate this. This is going to really reflect. And then I go on, you go and watch them. And you're like, they're just <laughs> world beaters and they're unstoppable. I'm like, what's going on? Um, but yeah, that's not to say that they don't train hard. That's everyone. But it, it is something that I've seen a lot where it's like, I, I hate practice. You know, Alan Iverson, I'm not here to talk about practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So I think it's just 
um, you know, I think that they see some benefit to it, but I think they see more benefit to actually practicing their sport and playing their sport. I, and that was the opposite, Doc. Where my athletic skills were were very were very uh, mediocre at best. On my best day, I was a mediocre athlete, but I did I kicked butt in the weight room. You know, when I when I was on my football team in college, when I was a member of the football team in college, I had won the top ten GPAs. I had won the top ten body weight to strength ratios, yeah. and I was one of the start one of the best starters on the scout team for the starting offense. So my athletic prowess did not necessarily match up what I what I enjoyed training. So I was on the opposite side of that scale. Right. Yeah. Anyway, doctor, I really appreciate your time. And and it, what's interesting, a lot of times I have people on the podcast are usually here to talk about a book, or they're usually not usually, but sometimes they're here to talk about a book. Do you have a book coming out? Do you have? I mean, I know if people want to cuddle up and read a good research on muscle physiology, they can do a search for your name on Google Scholar and find out what you've written. But uh, do you have a way that people could get more information if they want to learn more about what you're doing at Ole Miss? Yeah, they can look us up on. PubMed or follow me on Twitter um, or Instagram at J-P-L-O-E and then E-K-E. Uh, so at J.P. Winnicky. Um, yeah, I, I'm not selling really anything. Um, I do like to acknowledge, though, my students uh, who are, you know, work for me currently and in the past because, you know, it, it, you really can't do anything without really good students. And I've been really fortunate, you know, my whole time here um, and still uh, to this day, um, I have uh, let's see. Um, I think yeah, six of them. So six students who are working pretty much all the time, uh, working really hard. They have great minds um, and, and, you know, really good at challenging things. So that helps that helps my thinking as well. So I, I think that I have to give them a lot of credit because a lot of the ideas that we have, you know, they, they come from my current students and my past students through conversations. So it's not like a, you know, a one man show, not even close. So yeah, just my, my students more than anything, but I don't, I'm not selling anything else. No, that's actually great to hear. And the one thing I tell um, the, when I coach high school rugby, the one thing I tell the, the kids going off, um, the, the boys going off to college is get to know your professors, spend the time, get to know your professors because if your professors know that you care and they're serious about it, I've been this, I've done adjunct faculty work. And it's like, if I see a student that comes in and I can see that student is applying themselves or interested in the subject. Yeah. It's funny how it always, I'm not going to get you on record, but in my experience, it's funny how it always works out in the grading sheet. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, at, at Ole Miss, we have a, the exercise science faculty truly does have an open door policy. So I mean, I think it's a great environment, um, you know, anybody who's looking for a, a school, but um, we, we go all the way up to the, to the PhD. But yeah, I think the, the students that I've been able to bring into my lab have been top notch. Um, so I'm hoping that I can keep continuing to do that because I've been extremely lucky so far. And many of my past students are now off doing their own thing, which is, that's always great to see as well. So uh, it's, it's, it's always cool when you see that. Now, I was amazed. I went to school at the wrong time because I went to school at college in the early 90s when co- campus rec was a, some weights in the corner of the gym. I was at LSU about five weeks ago, doctor, and went into their main campus rec center. And, and the woman was like, yeah, we had to compete to be – we had to build this one to be competitive with Ole Miss. So yeah. campus rec seems to be run amok. I mean, if I, if I had a gym like that when I was in college, does Ole Miss have the same thing of just like a crazy recreation workout facility? Yeah, they have they have kind of two facilities. They have a brand new one, South Campus Rec. Um, you know, this is something my students will make fun of me for. So in our building, Turner Center, that's where our labs are located. There's a gym upstairs. That's the old one. That's the old gym. The new facility, which is a little bit on the other side of campus, is where everybody goes, or a lot of people go because it's brand new. Have a lot of stuff in there, but I've never walked through the front door. Because <laughs> I, I don't, I don't forget where I come from. You know what I mean? So yeah. I'm, tra- I'm training upstairs until they close that gym. So <laughs> that, that's just my personality. Um, they make fun of me because uh, they're like, you know, there are a lot of things that can make your life infinitely better that you choose not to do. Um, but I like the Turner Center just fine. Well, you know what? 10 pounds is 10 pounds. I mean, that doesn't matter where it is. Gravity is still about 9.81 meters a second. So no matter where you go, the weight's going to be the same. Well, Dr. Jeremy Lenicky from uh, Mississippi, uh, Ole Miss, I really appreciate your time, and I, I really appreciate the insights about blood flow restriction. Yeah, thanks for having me on. 
I first heard about the topic a number of years ago, but it sounded dangerous to me, so I kind of filed it away. In the last year, I received an interview request or an interview promotion from Dr. Jim Strait Gunderson, an exercise physiologist. He created the Be Strong brand of blood flow restriction training devices. There'll be a link down below to Dr. Strait Gunderson's interview. If you want to go back and listen to that interview, it's really cool. It's really insightful. He talks about how he uses that with his clients. If you want to learn more about exercise, if you want to learn more about exercise science and how to use exercise to to change your body, enhance your quality of life, you can pick up one of my books, Smarter Workouts or Ageless Intensity, or just go to my website, PeteMcCallFitness.com. At PeteMcCallFitness.com, you sign up for my mailing list. I'll send a chapter from Smarter Workouts so you can start learning about how to use exercise to change your life. And if you buy Ageless Intensity, you can learn how to use exercise to slow down the aging process. I've said it before, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, one of the reasons why I started the podcast was to bring you these type of conversations with leading researchers. I don't want you just to to follow, blindly follow somebody who looks great on social media and say, oh, I want to do what they're doing. What I want to do with this podcast is help you understand about how exercise changes our body and to help you learn about the types of exercise that can maybe be shortcuts and, and help you become stronger, add muscle growth without having to spend hours and hours and hours working on it. Now I say that and I got to walk that back for a second because anytime we talk about exercise, it needs consistent work. There really is no shortcut. But the interesting thing about blood flow restriction training is study after study after study and anecdotal experience and, and what you hear about it is that it can, it is, it can be like a shortcut. And whether it's cell swelling, whether it's promoting IGF, which is insulin-like growth factor, whether it's promoting other hormones, they're not really – that's a fascinating thing about exercise science. As Dr. Lenicky said, we don't really know for sure. We have an idea. I mean, if you do a number of studies on this subject, you can kind of – if you see repeatable results, you kind of get an idea that A leads to B. But the fact is we don't know for certain. So for a topic like blood flow restriction – the observations are that doing it consistently and doing it over time, yes, you can add muscle size. Now, does that necessarily lead to strength? Well, it's not really sure because muscle size is different than strength. We can have, you can have strong muscles that aren't necessarily big muscles and, and vice versa. You can have large muscles that don't necessarily generate as much force as somebody else that might be a little bit smaller and just can activate more muscle fibers. That's getting a little technical, but... The fact is, a lot of the reason why we like to exercise is to enhance muscle size and enhance strength. And if a technique like blood flow restriction can help do that, can, can, can help increase muscle size or help promote strength gains, then why not learn a little bit more about that technique? And what's interesting is you don't want to ever, and I write about this quite a bit, and, and just from reading the research and talking with, with so many smart people on the podcast, you don't want to ever only do one type of workout. So is blood flow restriction training effective? Certainly. But should it be the only thing you do? Not at all. You heard us talk a little bit about how to put that into a program, how to add that into your program throughout the year. And I'm still I'm just starting to play around with blood flow restriction. So as I learn more about it, I'll be writing about it on my blog. I'll be talking about it a little bit more on here because I want you to understand that this really could be a way to change up your training game. As I've been learning this, I've really, Ageless Intensity just came out. My book, Ageless Intensity, just came out. And I'm already thinking about the second version of it because in the second edition, I do want to write about blood flow restriction. I do want to go into a deeper dive on cryotherapy. I do want to add a component on, on intermittent fasting because all of these, there's evidence that's accumulating. Then Not only can these methods be good for our health in general, but these methods can help slow down the aging process. And for my female listeners and for my female audience, I realized I made a huge oversight in ageless intensity is I didn't have any specific information on menopause and, and how women's bodies change during menopause. And that's part of the bias of um, that's part of the bias of being a guy. Obviously, I'm going to be focused a little bit more on male stuff. But in, in, ages, in the second edition of Ageless Intensity, I want to do a deep dive on that. Anyway, I'm just kind of, that's a stream, stream of thought, random consciousness of just what I can do to, to put out more information that you can use to learn how to use exercise to not only enhance your quality of life, but learn how to use exercise 
to manage and control the aging process. Keep tuning in to All About Fitness, and I guarantee you will learn about that. Go to PeteMcCallFitness.com on a regular basis, sign up for the mailing list, and you'll get a lot of great information about how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life and slow down the aging process. You can follow the All About Fitness podcast on YouTube. You can follow the All About Fitness podcast on Instagram. You can reach out to me, Pete, at PeteMcCallFitness.com. And as always, thank you for stopping by. And I certainly look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.